0: Luke 19, 28 to 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany uh, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sent Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, "It is written: My house shall not be a house of, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." and he was watching, uh, teaching daily in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. We are um, so thankful that you're here this evening. My name is Jonathan, and it's my privilege to open up the Word uh, and be able to expound on it this evening. So we are glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 19. Uh, If not, it's printed as well in your bulletin, but we're going to be hopping around just a little bit, so I'd love for you to be able to have that uh, with you this evening. Every Easter, uh, the church globally, the Christian church around the world, stops to celebrate the resurrection. That's interesting because in in all of the movement that we have and all the differences that we have culturally around the globe and all of the things that make us unique as Americans or Westerners and all the things that make people of other nations and other cultures and ethnicities and races unique in their Christian worship, one of the many things that binds us together is the fact that we all take a moment and stop and remember Easter. We remember the resurrection, and so this time of year is filled with all kinds of familiar things, not only relating to our faith and our Christianity, but also just those kinds of things that we have uh, remembrances of this time of year. I mean, some of you people like peeps. I don't know why, but you like them, and so that's part of your Easter celebration is you eat a horrible marshmallow candy, and and somehow you think that that's a way to remember our our Savior's resurrection, but regardless, uh, there are all those different things, right, that make up a part of what people do this time of year, and so people go out and get new clothes and we wear pastel colors and pull the white shoes out of your winter box and all those different things that you do this time of year but there's something that happens a week before Easter that that historically as the church has progressed has become a part and parcel of what we do a story that marks the beginning of holy week And the Sunday before Easter is the Sunday we're remembering this evening. It's the triumphal entry of Christ. It's called Palm Sunday. And the truth of the matter is that as we look at this story, the thing that should so strike our hearts and our minds, that should be a remembrance for us as we begin this Holy Week, this time where we are specifically setting aside time, both formally, together, in worship and in service, and also individually through the course of our week, the reminder that ought to be rolling through our heads is that you cannot know Jesus unless you recognize Him as King. With all of the beauty of this time of year, the weather notwithstanding with all the wonders of coming into the spring and feeling warmer weather and getting new clothes and having those breaks from school and doing all of those things, let's not forget what it is that we're actually remembering. That God who is the king of the universe, the creator of the world, who spoke the world into existence and into motion, that that same God thought it was good and right for him to break into the darkness of this world, to pursue a people who had found themselves at enmity with him, literally made ourselves enemies of a holy and righteous God. And that's part of what we remember in this week, that what happened in this Holy Week forever changed the history and the course of the world, that all human history, up until this point of the story that we're reading this morning, and what's going to happen in that first week, or that, rather that last week of Jesus Christ's life before his death and resurrection, that all of human history was leading to that moment. That everything up until that point was a a pointer, a sign, an indication of what was going to come through Jesus Christ. And and that everything that has happened since that moment points back to it. Even in ways that a world around us that is completely secularized and, and has no regard for faith or Christianity, even in ways that they can't help but recognize. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize Easter. You certainly don't have to be a Christian to recognize that that the year and the dates of our calendars are marked by the birth and death of Jesus Christ. There are things that we cannot get away from, and and there are all kinds of ways that we see the fingerprints of what Jesus Christ did on our world even today. And so as meaningful as all of this is, it's easy for these things that are so familiar to us to become boring. And even as I use that word, I realize there are some people who, who initially would would bristle against the use of it but the truth of the matter is if you've grown up in or around the church you've heard these stories so many times you've heard the triumphal entry you've heard about palm sunday you know the story if you were a little kid growing up in in kind of a traditional church you probably actually had palms that you would wave around or maybe you cut some out of construction paper in your nursery class i mean these stories are so familiar to us that we be, they begin to lose their meaning in our minds But what I want to see as we go throughout the course of this week, both this evening, Good Friday, and then next Sunday morning with Easter as well, is I want to stop and be able to see what it means that Jesus is king. Because if you're in here and you don't know Jesus Christ, the truth of the matter is there is something that is functioning as king in your life. Our hearts naturally desire a king. We desire something or someone to worship. We are are desiring validation And we will find those things in one place or another. And my heart is to show you how Jesus meets that need in a way that nothing else can. And so both in this evening on Good Friday and on Easter, what we're going to do is we're going to work through St. Luke's account of this Holy Week. So we're going to begin tonight in Luke chapter 19. But in order to really look at that, we need to understand the context of what's happened to this point. I mean, if you remember the beginnings of the story uh, of, of Jesus Christ, I mean, again, stories that are familiar to us, but you have this son being born to a poor virgin woman and her espoused husband... And he's born in this miraculous manner. I mean, a mother who, who had never been with a man, never known a man, and yet she conceives. She gives birth to this child named Jesus. And so Jesus is born in this backwater village called Bethlehem, in a backwater region called Galilee. I mean, this place had no significance. It had no meaning. It had no significance on the world stage, and yet we find Jesus Christ having his birth there. We see Jesus over the course of the next few years. The Bible describes it that he grows in wisdom and in stature. That just like any other child might grow, he grows in his understanding of the world. He grows in his knowledge about things that he sees around him. He grows in wisdom in his life. And from a very early age, what you see in Jesus is something so unique and so different. You find him in the temple having conversations with priests and discussing deep theological concepts with them. His mother and father don't know where he is. And when they finally find him, they find him in the temple having these conversations. Mother like uh, Mary, like any any worried mother uh, might say, says, Jesus, where have you been? We've been looking for you. We didn't know where you were. You got to tell us when you're going places. And Jesus says, I've been about my father's business. I've been doing what I came here to do. You see Jesus growing in other ways until at the point when, he's, when he reaches about 30 years of age, he begins his earthly ministry. He goes out and he meets a few fishermen on the local shores and he says, look, I want you to come with me. I want you to put down your nets, put aside your livelihood, put aside everything that you know in this life, everything you were brought up to do, everything that makes you who you are, your income, everything, set all of it aside and I want you just to follow me. And they say, well, where are we going? And he says, well, you'll find out as we get there, but I'm going to make you fishers of men. We're going to go tell people about the love of a heavenly father, about a father who loves you so much that he sends his own begotten son to die on you for a cross. And, of course, the disciples had no understanding at that point of of anything that was going to come. And so, as this ragtag group of followers follows Jesus around the countryside, they begin to see him doing really miraculous, truly miraculous, amazing things. You see Jesus at, at a wedding with his family and and at one point during the evening, during the course of the celebration, they discover that all the wine has already been, uh, has already been drank, and they're looking around, the, 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 the father of the, of the bride is running around looking for more wine, can't find any, the guests are still there, they're still thirsty, they're still hungry, they don't want the party to end, and so somebody comes and tells Jesus, and Jesus says, go out and get all these barrels and fill them up with water. I want you to bring them to me. And so they do. Jesus stands over there and he prays and suddenly, instantaneously, this water turns to wine. And think about what that means. I mean, not only does that mean that Jesus inherently in that moment has the ability to change something from one substance to another, but do you realize that in some form or another that means that Jesus has power over time? That good wine that takes years to become good, he makes good instantaneously. They go into the next town over and they find someone who's, who's lame his whole life. He's never been able to walk. He's never been able to run around with his friends. He's just been sitting there able to do absolutely nothing in his entire life. And Jesus comes across this man, tells him to take up his bed and walk. And the man leaps to his feet and begins to run. Legs that had atrophied and never taken a step before. All of a sudden this man is running. Jesus goes into the middle of a a leper colony, literally these men that have been set aside from all of the rest of the community, aside from everybody that they loved and everybody that was around them simply because they had this disease that was horrific in nature. that portions of your body would begin to deteriorate and literally fall off. And so he interacts with these folks who are missing limbs and fingers and ears. And we're told that Jesus restores them that he didn't just stop the disease cold in its tracks. He didn't just make them as if they didn't have the disease anymore, but literally it's, it's as if he turned back the clock on their illness. They were perfectly whole. And as word of Jesus and his miracles and his teaching grow, the crowds begin to form around him, first dozens and then hundreds and ultimately thousands of people following him around the countryside. We see Jesus preaching to a group of 5,000 men plus women and children, and the, lunchtime, uh, the, the time for lunch comes around, and the disciples come to Jesus and say, look, what are we going to do with all of these people? They're all here to, to, hear, to hear you preach, to hear you declare your gospel, but we have nothing to feed them. So one little boy says, well, I have, I have a few loaves and fish that my mom gave me for lunch. Would that be of any help? And you can almost hear the chuckling as this little boy offers up his lunch. And Jesus receives the lunch, we're told that he blesses it, and then he begins to break off chunks of that bread. And as he begins to break it off, all of a sudden people realize, hey, this, this bread isn't disappearing. And 5,000 men plus women and children were fed that day off of a little boy's lunch. We find Jesus preaching to the people about the kingdom of God and the most amazing sermon that's ever been given we find it in the book of in the book of Matthew where Jesus completely turns on his on its head the whole notion people have about what religion is and how God works and who God is and what his nature is and what is it even to sin what is it to find happiness and joy in the father what is it to find restoration what is it to find mercy and grace and peace and the whole time this is happening Jesus fame is exploding People who just years earlier didn't even know where Galilee was on a map now know the name of Jesus Christ. And as he continues to preach and continue to perform miracles, his, his fame spreads. People are now telling stories about him, sharing of things that they saw him do. And one man says, well, I, I saw him spit in the, spit in the dirt and, and mix up clay in his hands and put it on a blind man's eyes. And all of a sudden, the blind man was able to see. Somebody else says, well, I heard that there was There was this one particular man whose daughter had died. And Jesus brought her back. Someone else said, do you remember that demoniac that was causing all those problems in the next town over? You remember that guy running around naked, jumping in fires, screaming? You remember that guy? Hard to forget. Do you know he's not that way anymore? He's been completely changed. And by the time we reach Luke chapter 19, what we find... Is that Jesus' fame has grown so tremendously that the only place he's able to preach is as he's on a boat and all the people are gathered around the shore, a natural amphitheater. And what leads up to this chapter is the most amazing miracle that Jesus has yet to perform, which is that he brought his friend Lazarus back from the dead. This man had been dead so long that his body had begun to stink, he was growing decrepit wasting. And Jesus comes to the open mouth of that tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And here walks Lazarus, whole and alive again. The reason I tell you all of that is to set the stage for what we find in Luke chapter 19. Because the fame of Jesus Christ had so grown that where we find Jesus here, he is being followed by at least hundreds, likely thousands of people. He's making his way into the city. Word of his fame has spread, and people at this point are already asking the question could this possibly be the Messiah? Is this the one who was promised to deliver us? Is this the one through whom we find salvation and deliverance and freedom? And so when the people discover that Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, the the conversation intensifies even more. And simultaneous to all of these things happening, this is the week of Passover. I mean, according to the historian Josephus, this was the time of year when so many people were making their way into Jerusalem that its normal, normal population of about 1 million had grown to 2 to 3 million people. I mean, imagine what it would look like for a city, let's say the size of Milwaukee, about half the size of Jerusalem at this point. Imagine if all of a sudden, instead of being 600,000 people, you went into the city and it was 1.5 million people. Imagine how overwhelming that would feel where there's so many more people out on the streets and around and everywhere you go, it's shoulder to shoulder, you're bumping into people. In the midst of all this happening, Jerusalem at this time, is occupied by the Romans. This invading force that had taken over the city. And what the Romans would do when they came into a city is they would go and they would gather up children and men and women. They would take them outside of the city gates and putting them up like mile markers, they would crucify men and women, boys and girls. So that as you walked into the city and heard the screams and the shouts of people who were suffering you would be reminded that you do not mess with the Romans. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into. Imagine the hope. Imagine the excitement of the Jewish people as this one who they believe might be the Messiah begins to walk into the city. And the question that you need to ask yourself today is the same question that the Jews asked 2,000 years ago. Who is Jesus. Look at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were those who were sent away and found it. Ju- <clears throat> so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." So just imagine this: he sends his disciples ahead. He says, "You're going to go into the city. You're going to walk down this street. You're going to see at this one particular place there's a donkey tied up, and I want you to take that, bring it to me. If anyone stops you, you just tell them it's for me." So the disciples do that. They head out to find this. And and as they're untying the colt, the owner of the colt comes out and says, hey, hey, what's going on? Why are you taking my animal? And the response that they give is this, the Lord has need of it. All kinds of questions have been raised over the years about whether or not Jesus actually claimed to be God. But what you find in this moment is that this word that is specifically reserved for the person of God, this word Lord, is used by Jesus Christ in this moment to determine his own authority. And he says, look, if anybody asks you what you're doing, you just tell them the Lord has need of it. I mean, to say that you were the Lord was blasphemy among the Jews. You were claiming that you were the one true God. And among the Romans, it was treason. Because at this point, Caesar was God. And so for you to claim that you were God was to threaten the very person who is the ruler of the known world. But understand this, the significance of Jesus Christ riding in on the back of an animal was not lost on any of the people that were gathered there. The Jews had long since known about this prophecy that had been given 500 years before Christ came in Zechariah 9, uh, excuse me, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says this, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation!' Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? And every Jew would have known this passage. They knew the passages that were about their future deliverer. And so riding an animal into a celebration like this was something that the people knew was reserved for kings. When kings came back from battle, they would be riding on top a great horse to indicate to their people that everything was good, that they had won the day, that victory belonged to them. And in times of peace, the king might ride around on a donkey indicating that the people were no longer at war. But what would have thrown the Jews for a loop is that they were expecting a liberator on the back of a great war horse. Someone to come in and deliver, deliver them from the shackles of the Romans, but instead what they received was Jesus Christ riding in on a donkey, a peacetime animal. This is Jesus declaring that he is the prince of peace. This is the mount not of a victorious king, but of a humble one. And Jesus absolutely knew the message that he was sending. The Jews wanted a political liberator, but Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. Verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So the disciples go, they get the donkey, they lay their coats on the back of the donkey for Jesus to sit on, and imagine this with me, I mean a city of one million that's now expanded to nearly three million people, imagine the hubbub, imagine the movement, these narrow streets that were filled with people and animals and all of those different things, and here comes Jesus coming right down the middle, headed towards the temple. And even that, even the fact that he was heading towards the temple, is an indicator that is consistent with the rhythm of Jesus Christ's life. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is declared the king at his birth. In Matthew chapter 3, he's anointed as the king and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 1, he's recognized as king in his ministry by his disciples. In John 19, his enemies call him king in Luke chapter 23 he calls himself the king his parables about the kingdom his parables were about the kingdom of god that he was going to bring and the miracles that he performed were about the power of the kingdom breaking through the fallenness of the present darkness i mean jesus entire ministry is an announcement of this kingdom and now on palm sunday we have jesus heading toward the temple Do you know where kings are enthroned at this time? The temple. Jesus was making a statement. And ahead of him, the crowds of people are beginning to part to take room. They begin to take off their coats so that Jesus can travel across the top of that and just even understand what an amazing indicator that is. I mean, at this time, the the coat that you wore was the most expensive item of clothing you had. I mean, this is the thing that had to, keep you, had to keep you warm when it was cold outside. It had to keep the sun off you in the middle of the heat. It was the thing that you might sleep on or, or cover yourself with if you were out having to sleep outside. I mean, this was an expensive garment. And people are saying the donkey that Jesus is riding doesn't even deserve to touch the dirt. They're making a declarative statement about who Jesus Christ is. And if that's not enough, as Jesus begins to come and they're laying down the coats in the street and they're realizing this isn't enough, they begin to pull down palm branches right off of the trees and lay them at his feet. People are waving them around according to the account of John. They're they're doing this in praise of the returning king. And look what it says in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this crowd begins to worship and sing praises to Jesus They begin to quote from Psalm 118, this passage that was specifically about the Messiah that was going to come through the line of David to bring relief and redemption and forgiveness and freedom to his people. They're praising him as Savior, using scripture to lift him up. And it's that reminder that all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, that from the very beginning of the curse, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, do you remember the words of God in that moment? So said, the serpent has bruised, has bruised the heel of mankind, but there's coming a Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent. And we're told that, that that promised Messiah would come through the line of David, and here sits Jesus of that same lineage. And the people begin to shout this very strange word to our ears, familiar in a church context, but strange outside of it. They begin to yell, Hosanna. Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Na, which literally means save us. This was a cry of people who were desperate. And at the same time, a cry of praise for the one they hoped would deliver them. But even as they yelled those words, they had no idea how he would save them. See, they didn't make the connection between Jesus' entry into the city and the Passover that, would happen, that happened thousands of years earlier. They didn't make the connection that Jesus was entering the city at this first day of the week of Passover. This is the same day that people were going out to select the animals that they were going to sacrifice. And here comes the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for the world, riding down their streets. See, Jesus is saying in this moment, look, if I just came to liberate you from the Romans, if I just came to free you from political oppression, how much would that actually help you? He's saying, do you understand that you have a far greater problem than your politics? You have a far greater problem than the horrific abuses of the Roman government. He's saying, I've come to deliver you from something that is far more oppressive than any regime. I have come to deliver you from death itself. And we know that historically there were some there that day who shouted, Hosanna, save us. Who just days later would be shouting in the crowd, Crucify him. How is that even possible? It's possible because Jesus came to bring restoration and freedom, but the crowd that day had already decided how they wanted him to do that. They had made a plan for themselves that they expected the Messiah to follow, and the Messiah come to answer a far greater problem that they didn't even realize existed. See, they saw their problems as external. They saw it as political oppression, the lack of freedom, the lack of the the ability to govern themselves. But Jesus came saying, no, your biggest problem isn't outside of yourself putting pressure on you. Your biggest problem is inside of yourself and it's just trying to work its way out. Your problem is internal, not external. Your problem is a heart that doesn't understand the kind of sin that it commits. Your problem is is the attempt to live your life without my presence and without my love. And the problem is the people didn't want Jesus to heal those things. They wanted him to fix their circumstances. And when Jesus didn't sufficiently fix their circumstances in the way that they expected, it led them to resentment. It led them to say, well, who is this guy anyway? This isn't the Messiah I expected. And do you realize that this is the same way that we often treat God? As we sit and try to even understand how someone could go from praising God to crucifying him. Does it occur to us that we do the very same thing in our hearts? See, we have a tendency to think that we just need to be better people. If I was a better mom or a better dad, if I was living a better life, if I could just stop doing that one sin, if I could get my finances in order, if I could, if I could just be happy. So the tendency of so many people is to come to Jesus to try to get those things from him. Jesus, I want you so long as you can give me these things that I want Give me the family that I feel like I deserve. Give me the kids that will behave the way that I want them to behave. Give me the husband who finally picks up the slack around the house. Give me a wife who appreciates me. Give me circumstances that are improved. Give me happiness. Give me, give me freedom from the Romans. The same heart of those who crucified Christ 2,000 years ago exists today. And so whatever it is that you have brought Jesus in to help you accomplish, that is the functional king of your life. Whatever that thing is where you're saying, I'm coming to Jesus because I want him to do this. Do you understand in that moment you have just declared that Jesus is not the king, but that thing is, and Jesus will not be used. In fact, he says it this way in Luke chapter 9, verse 24. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And here's what he means. He's saying, whatever you're living for does not serve you. You have no ability to control it. You have no ability to manage it. You have no ability to put shackles on it or to put a leash on it. Whatever it is you are living for dominates you. You are a servant of it, not the other way around and in the upside-down economy of God. What he just said in Luke chapter 9, verse 24 is, whatever it is that you are most desiring to attain in this life is the thing that will inevitably crush you. But if you will lose your life for my sake, to give up that idol, to give up that thing that you are trying so desperately to hold on to, you will find life. And for those who understand the meaning of that verse, that is not a balm. It's uncomfortable. Because we are so afraid to let go. See, all of us are longing for a king. We are desperate for one. It's a result of being cut off from God in the fall. I mean, we feel it physically as our bodies age and deteriorate. We feel it emotionally as we find ourselves broken in relationships and in family. We feel it psychologically as we are longing for some sort of security and some sort of sanity. We feel it in every element and aspect of our life, and certainly and most profoundly, we experience it spiritually trying to fill a hole in our heart, a hole in our life that nothing in this world can fill. And so the invitation of this passage is that you would begin to see that there is only one king worth serving. So what's the significance for us? Here's the thing that blows me away about this passage. That since Jesus came as a humble king, since he came as a weak king, you can trust him. That he is not oppressive, he is not a tyrant, he is not dominating, he is humble. It's amazing out of all the ways that Jesus Christ chooses to reveal himself and the language that he chooses to use about himself, that the language he uses is so consistently around the idea of humility and grace, humility and gentleness. It's what Zechariah 9.9 just said about him, a humble, gentle king. It's the image of a king riding in on a donkey. It's the words of Jesus Christ as he says, if you will follow me, if you'll understand who I am, if you'll serve me, if you'll love me, he says, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. It's that idea that a yoke that was put on an animal's back is something that that was handcrafted to fit them perfectly so that it wasn't burdensome, it wasn't uncomfortable, it wasn't painful, it just felt right. How could a domineering, dominating, oppressive king promise that? He couldn't. And it's why we see a king that is gentle And humble. No other king can serve you that way. And so, what is that king in your life? Because if your king is your career and you live for it and fail, it will crush you, it will punish you. Your career can't bring peace. It can't suffer on your behalf to make things right. All it, can, it can't reconcile what's broken. All it can do is sit there as a judge. So one of my temptations is it's easy for me to look at my family as my king. I love my family. I really do. They're fun. And I love my boys and I love my wife. But they make really terrible kings in my life because I am putting the burden that only God himself can bear on another human being. And not only does it crush them within the context of that relationship, but ultimately it crushes me as well. Because there was only one king who could do all of this for me. And it's true of family and wealth and comfort and power and anything else you're trying to find your meaning in. But the weak king, the true king came to give himself to bring you into the kingdom, to adopt you into his family, to make you a son with the same standing as his own Jesus Christ. So how are we to make sense of what's going to come later in this week in Good Friday when this very same king was nailed to a Roman cross? when he was hung up naked, belittled and mocked, when the beard was pulled from his face and the crown of thorns jammed into his skull? How do we make sense of the fact that this happened to the king who came to bring salvation to that very same people? Because kings aren't supposed to go to the cross, they're supposed to send people there. make sense of it because he's a king unlike any other. Jesus didn't come to set the Jews free from the Romans. He didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive and to make enemies into family. And though the the crowd's worship in that day was shallow and momentary, Jesus would suffer and die for their sins and for ours and cry out, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And if you don't understand that He's the King who knows better than you what your life needs to be, if you don't understand that He's the King who has a better plan for you than you could ever plan for yourself, then you will inevitably turn with resentment the same way the crowd did that day with the amazing promise that we'll reflect on painfully this Friday I mean it should feel dark and heavy on our souls to think about the cross it's the same thing that leads to what we're going to celebrate next Sunday and it's the truth The amazing truth that Jesus Christ died for the same people who abandoned him. And that includes us. So John Stott said it this way. He said, as the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, so the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. I mean, think about that. It was this exchange that he made. And finally, we read this in verse 39, and then we'll close. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And this is language we see all through Scripture. It's the same language that we find in the book of Genesis when Cain murders Abel, and we're told that the earth itself cried out. See, whenever you see something like that happening in Scripture, what it's saying is that an injustice has just been committed. And what Jesus is declaring in this moment is, if you told these people to stop worshiping, it would be an injustice that the earth itself couldn't bear. The stones would cry out my praise and my honor and my glory. They would worship my name. And so while these people were standing there waving palm branches in the air, singing praises to their God, thinking of it purely as a hero's welcome for a liberator that they longed to see to Jesus, it meant much more than that. Because of what was prophesied in Isaiah 55, 12, which says this, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you, God, shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. And so as the people stood there that day, waving their palm branches in the air and singing his praises, it was just a foretaste, a shadow, an echo what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns once again. When all of creation sings the praise of its maker. When his people are restored and reunited. And where what's broken in this world is set right. See that day the palm branches were waving. But in that day to come they'll be waving while still on the trees. So do you know Jesus? Not just have you heard of him, not just do you know about him, do you know this king? Have you experienced his goodness and his love and his grace? And have you bowed before him? Let's pray. God, I imagine that in this room there are the same groups of people present that were there that day Jesus entered the city. There are those who are singing your name and reading scripture about you and worshiping you, but only in so far as you are giving them what they want. God, would you break them of the delusion that their life is about them? God, there are those here who are just caught up in the spectacle, They just happened to be around when this party was ensuing. And in the same way, there are those of us who've just grown up in and around the church. This is just what we do. We just happen to be here. God, would you help us to see that this isn't just a spectacle to observe, but that you've invited us in as family. And God, there are those here who just want to know their king, God, for them, would you bring restoration, healing, freedom? Would they experience the fulfillment of the longing in their soul in the person of Jesus Christ? So we thank you for all these things, and it's in your name we pray.